This is episode 153 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today we have two guests. We have Rory O'Brien and Candace Devlin. And Rory O'Brien graduated from the University of Michigan with a bachelor's in linguistics and earned her master's degree in communication sciences and disorders from the University of North Carolina. She is a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders. She has worked as a medical speech-language pathologist at Duke Regional Hospital in Durham, North Carolina for nine years, evaluating and treating adults in the acute care and acute rehabilitation settings. She serves as a fee basis employee at the Durham VA Medical Center, where she also completed her clinical fellowship in 2011. Her primary area of interest is dysphagia, particularly in the medically complex populations, as well as neurogenic dysphagia. She has been instrumental in developing and bringing respiratory muscle training and IDSI programs to Duke Regional Hospital. Rory also has a passion for educating new clinicians and serves as the student coordinator for graduate student clinicians at her hospital. And joining Rory is her colleague, Candace. Candace Devlin is a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders. She has worked as a medical speech-language pathologist at Duke Regional Hospital in Durham, North Carolina for 10 years, evaluating and treating adults in the acute care and acute rehabilitation settings. She also serves as a fee-basis employee at the Durham VA Medical Center. Her primary area of interest is dysphagia, especially in the tracheostomy and ventilator-dependent patient populations, as well as neurogenic dysphagia. She's been instrumental in developing and bringing respiratory muscle training and inline passing Miravalve programs to Duke Regional Hospital. Ms. Devlin earned her master's in communication sciences and disorders from East Carolina University. Outside from work, Candace spends her time with her husband and two boys ages three and nine months. I hope you guys love this conversation. I think it was an amazing conversation with these two about a topic that so many people have so many questions about, and we just don't have a ton of information or research about it. So I hope you love it. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, a mobile fees business owner, and founder of the MedSLP Collective. This podcast is all about delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere. Whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for treatment or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is to help ditch the old school ways of the past that no longer serve you or your patients, to reinvigorate your passion for our field, to broaden your knowledge about our scope of practice, and to inspire you to practice at the top of your license. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride, be open and willing to learn, because let's face it, your patients deserve that kind of care. With that, let's dive right in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Hello, ladies. Hi. Thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thank you for having us. All right. So who are you? So my name is Candice Devlin. I'm a speech therapist at Duke Regional Hospital. I've been working there for about 10 years, uh, doing all the things that medical SLPs do. I became a BCSS in 2014 and just recertified uh, last year. And we, uh, well, I also, and Rory will say the same, um, uh, serve as a fee basis employee at the Durham VA Hospital. Awesome. Yeah. My name's Rory O'Brien and my bio is very similar. I work at Duke Regional. Um, I have been there for nine years and practicing for 10. I did my fellowship at the Durham VA where I'm still a fee basis employee. 
and I became BCSF certified in 2014 as well. Oh, awesome. Yeah. I got I have to go through that recertification I think next year. Yeah. 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 It's it's not as bad as the first time around. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank goodness. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. All right. So what are we going to talk about today, guys? Yeah. So we're going to talk about oxygen therapies and swallowing considerations. Awesome. Um, with a lot of it highlighting uh, the high flow nasal cannula, which everyone is really yes. excited about yes. and loves to talk about. Yes. Yeah. And one of the reasons that we really looked into this is because we didn't know a ton about it. And we got a lot of questions amongst our own team and our PRN staff and our doctors about what should you do or not do and who can eat and who can't eat. And we really wanted to figure that out. Awesome. I love it. I know this is such a great topic because it's usually, oh, they're on high flow. They can't eat. You know, it's like, well, but, well, yes. but wait, but wait. So yeah. awesome. Yeah, absolutely. All right. And I would say if anyone's listening to this and wants to know, and they're hopeful to hear what's the cutoff for when a patient can eat or drink on high flow nasal cannula, I think spoiler alert, there is no cutoff. Uh, You can uh, learn more about it as you hear us talk. Awesome. All right. I think we can start just talking a little bit about like, why do SLPs care about oxygen requirements in patients? Um, And I will say, you know, we work in a hospital, so this is kind of pertaining to acute care patients. Um, And in our hospital, most patients on the higher oxygen and higher uh, devices are going to be in the intensive care unit. So when you hear us talk about these patients that are on different oxygen devices, specifically high-flow nasal cannula, we're talking about pretty sick patients in acute care. These aren't outpatients or skilled nursing facility patients or anything like that. Right. And I think the other thing to know, too, is that this title, high-flow nasal cannula, has multiple different names. So you might also hear heated humidified high-flow nasal cannula or like HHHFNC. Um, and then some of the brand names of that are OptiFlow and Vapotherm. I'm sure there are others too, but you may hear people say, well, they're on OptiFlow or high-flow nasal cannula or Vapotherm. Um, and so even just the terminology of the different types can be kind of confusing. So that's just something to keep in mind. What we're mostly talking about is that heated humidified high-flow nasal cannula. Awesome. Thank you for that. Yeah. yeah. I think to start off with, you know, the reason why SLPs should care about oxygen requirements in patients is because oxygen requirements can just tell us a lot about the patient's overall respiratory status. And so the more oxygen they're on, the more compromised they may be medically. And that's something to certainly take into consideration when you're walking into the patient's room to evaluate their swallowing. Um, And we know based on a lot of research um, that patients in at least moderate respiratory distress can have difficulty coordinating their breathing and area protection during the swallow. And, you know, we have a a good list of studies that show that altered respiratory conditions can impact the swallow that we can certainly send on to you and you can uh, give to the listeners um, if they request it. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So of course there's just your standard nasal cannula which does not deliver a precise amount of FiO2. It can be arranged depending on how many liters per minute that the patient is getting and that would be you know, just something that you see on a floor patient or in the ICU too as well. Um, And usually those patients are not in as much respiratory distress um, because they don't need as much of an oxygen requirement. So we're not as concerned about those patients. Of course, we're going to take everything into account, but they're not as medically compromised as some others. 
there's a, an oxygen device that's high flow oxygen tubing. So this is not high flow nasal cannula, but it's just a larger bore, um, often green tubing that can deliver seven to 15 liters of, per minute of oxygen with, a, with an approximate FiO2 range. And we'll talk a little bit more about what is the difference between flow and what's the difference between FiO2, which patient needs flow, which patient needs FiO2, and why knowing those things are important. So um, going away from nasal cannula and talking about like masks. Um, so just a general disclaimer about masks and oxygen um, use in our hospital, at least, and the way that we practice. If a patient needs a mask device to receive oxygen, we are generally not going to remove it to do a swallow evaluation or anything like that. Of course, there's going to be an exception when the patient just needs to know, you know, the doctors say they have to stay on the mask and can they just take this one pill and you have to do what you have to do to satisfy the need of that patient. But generally, if they need an oxygen device that is a mask, then that means that if you take the mask off for them to eat and drink, you're depriving them of their oxygen need. And for us and our patients, their oxygen needs are always going to be higher than their swallowing needs. And so we do not remove masks for swallow valves. Mm -hmm. That said, there's different kinds of masks. And what we think is really good to know as an SLP is what device could be used as a substitution for a mask. If a patient does need that level of oxygenation, what do you know of that maybe a respiratory therapist could help you with too, or the doctor that you could say, you know, they're on this face mask, but could they be switched to this device so that I do have access to their mouth? So one of the most simple masks is just called a simple mask. It provides anywhere from six to 12 liters uh, per minute of uh, oxygen, and that is, it gives an approximate FiO2 of 35 to 65%. Um, you often see this like after surgery, sometimes patients are wearing them. Um, in our hospital, we don't really see them a lot, you know, in the patients that we're, that we're evaluating. Um, so usually that's a temporary thing that, and they'll be switched to nasal cannula or another device pretty quickly. So that's not necessarily a mask I'm super worried about in terms of their respiratory status because probably they can move to a different device where I could evaluate them. Um, and again, we just don't see them a lot in our, on our floors or in our ICUs. So uh, the next two masks we'll talk about, one is a Venturi mask and the other is an aerosol face mask. So you can think of them as wet and dry. So the Venturi mask, it does deliver a precise FiO2 that ranges from 24 to 50%. It can also be used for transport of patients that are tracheostomized. Um, so indications for this mask would be if they need a precise FiO2 um, or if they have like an increased flow demand and they're unable to wear like a standard nasal cannula, um, mouth breathers could also wear this mask. The other mask is an aerosol face mask, and this is considered a wet face mask. So this can deliver nebulized, humidified air to patients that need that. And it does deliver a precise FiO2 from 28 to 96%. Um, so this does have a higher FiO2 range compared to the Venturi mask. Um, and again, this is able to deliver that nebulized, aerosolized, oxygenized air for patients that need that. Uh, with those masks, you definitely would not want to remove that for a swallow evaluation. Um, and if they, the doctors want that patient to eat and drink, then um, the substitution for that would probably be the heated, humidified, high-flow nasal cannula or the, that OptiFlow or Airvo 2 or Vapotherm. Yeah. 
So the, I think the last mask we'll talk about is called a non-rebreather mask, and this delivers approximately 60 to 90% FiO2 when it's set at 15 liters per minute. You definitely would not do a swallow bell on a patient on a non-rebreather. Uh, generally, a non-rebreather is, you know, the patient could possibly be substituted out for a high-flow nasal cannula device, possibly, but a lot of times with a non-rebreather, those patients are not doing well and they're really sick. Um, we often see them as sort of like a rescue breathing device mm -hmm. in our hospital. So if someone's on an unrebreather, most likely they're in the ICU and the doctors are sort of figuring out what to do next. Like or they're, they're on going, the way to the ICU. Yeah, or they're going there, yeah. Um, are they going to stabilize a little bit and we can get them to OptiFlow or maybe BiPAP? Or are they going to decompensate and need to be intubated? So if a patient's on an non-rebreather, that's definitely a time out, hold, pause, let's see what happens. And then once they stabilize, maybe you could get to another device, you would evaluate them. But I certainly would never be taking a non-rebreather off to do a swallow of bell. Oftentimes when I find a patient on a non-rebreather, the chart says nothing about it. And then I'll get to their room and I'll see they're on that. And I'll say, uh-oh, uh no. <laughs> I'll just turn around and, and walk the other way because um, that is certainly an event happened and they're on like this rescue device. Awesome. Thank you for clarifying all that. Yeah. Yeah. So those are kind of the most common oxygen devices you would find in a hospital. Um, and I guess next we'll be getting into that high flow nasal, the heated humidified high flow nasal cannula. Yeah. So um, I guess for anyone who doesn't know, or, you know, is not able to look at any pictures that we have right now. We, as we said, it is often called heated humidified high flow nasal cannula or high flow nasal cannula or vapotherm or AIRVO2 or OptiFlow. Um, this is not just a standard nasal cannula that's cranked up to a high flow rate. Um, it's actually going to take gas and heat it to a certain temperature and give a relative humidity to whatever you set it to. So it can deliver 21 to 100% FiO2 at flow rates of up to 60 liters per minute. So it goes from 20 to 60 liters. Um, and these are set separately. So you're able to set the FiO2 separate from the liters per minute, which is an important distinction of this device, which makes it really great for patients in different kinds of respiratory distress. And then we'll talk about some of the other benefits as well. Yeah, so the some of the benefits of high-flow nasal cannula or heated humidified high-flow nasal cannula is that the patients can eat and drink in theory. It reduces the need for non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, so the CPAP and the BiPAP. Um, you can set that precise FAO2 for patients that need that for their oxygenation. Um, it provides heated humidity. It can produce extrinsic, extrinsic PEEP, and we will talk about that in just a minute. It can meet high flow demand for patients that um, have that uh, ventilatory demand or they're tachypnic and, and they need that flow rate to meet that demand. It can eliminate most of anatomic dead space, and we'll talk a little bit about, more about that and what dead space is, um, and it reduces the risk for facial ulcers. So when we talk about um, meeting the flow demand, so I kind of said if a patient's tachypnic, so if they're breathing really, really fast, heated humidified high-flow nasal cannula can meet that ventilatory demand and increase their functional residual cap capacity. So what that means is it's the lung volume at the end of exhalation. So the more that they can increase that lung volume at the end of exhalation, the better they're going to be able to oxygenate um, upon their next breath. When we talk about um, eliminating anatomic dead space, so dead space, everyone has it. There's anatomic dead space, but then there's also physiologic dead space. 
anatomic dead space is about 150 milliliters in adult humans. Um, and it's the volume of air that's inhaled that does not take part in gas exchange, either because it remains in the conducting airways, so like your oropharynx, your pharynx, your, your upper trachea, or this is physiologic dead space, if it reaches alveoli that are not perfused or they're poorly perfused because of whatever the, the respiratory pathology the patient has. So if they have a PE, that's going to increase their physiologic dead space because their oxygen that they're breathing does not reach that area of the lung that is affected. So during respiratory failure, of course, patients have increased dead space ventilation due to you know, pneumonia, pulmonary edema, atelectasis, or whatever it is. So that part of the lung does not participate in gas exchange. So if we can eliminate that dead space with heated humidified high-flow nasal cannula, that's awesome for the patient. Um, we really like that. Uh, so that's kind of all I'll talk about with dead yeah. space. <laughs> So I think one of the biggest questions that we had when we started looking into the benefits and how the high flow nasal cannula can affect swallowing is because this device can set a, a separate flow and a separate FiO2, our big question was always, well, who needs flow and who needs FiO2? And patients need both. If they're, if they're using this device, they're going to be set at some level for both of them. So they need both. But what patient needs more flow and less FiO2 and vice versa? Who, what, are, what do each of these things do? So that was one of our really big questions in looking into this and making ourselves learn about this. Um, so we want to talk about flow first. So flow is like the liters per minute. That is what can be set from 20 to 60 on your standard high-flow nasal cannula or OptiFlow or whatever. And flow does three things. So it creates that extrinsic PEEP, which increases oxygenation. And what that means is that the high-flow nasal cannula device delivers a PEEP of about one for every 10 liters of flow delivered with closed mouth breathing which increases oxygenation by keeping positive pressure in the airways at the end of exhalation. So by opening up the airways, the alveolar surface increases, creating more area for gas exchange. Extrinsic PEEP also significantly decreases the patient's work of breathing. So if you have that patient, like Candace was talking about, who's breathing really quickly, the higher flow level will hopefully meet their oxygenation demands and bring their respiratory rate down. Right. So that's an important thing that flow does. It will also wash out that dead space that's been created by whatever pulmonary process is happening. So that will help remove CO2 and improve their breathing. And then it also matches their respiratory demand, similar to what we were just saying. So if the patient is breathing really rapidly, they're going to get enough flow and liters per minute to meet their demand and bring that respiratory rate down. So we typically think for flow, you're looking at hypoxic patients that need that PEEP, um, patients who are retaining CO2, or patients that are short of breath, having that increased work of breathing and not getting adequate tidal volumes with each breath that they take. So that's going to be the liters per minute, the flow type patient. And when you think of flow, think of that blowing effect. This is what SLPs are always worried about with the swallowing is they're on 60 liters. This is going to blow food right down their airway, which possibly, yeah. and we'll, we'll talk about we that. We will talk more about but that. But when, when we talk a little bit more about swallowing and related to OptiFlow, uh, heated humidified high flow nasal cannula, we're going to talk mostly about the flow. Okay. So, and we'll get to it a little bit more, but the 
the flow is more concerning to the SLP generally because it can create a CPAP effect of that with that blowing. So we'll talk about that more in a minute. Let's talk about FiO2 and who are those patients that need that high FiO2. So FiO2 can be set on this device at 21 to 100%. And FiO2 is gonna treat hypoxia and perfusion issues of any kind. So for example, if a patient has an obstructive lung issue like a PE or something like that, and their lungs are otherwise healthy, a high flow, you could blow all the liters you wanted, would not necessarily pass through that PE and participate in the gas exchange. Mm -hmm. So the FiO2 is needed to help their lungs perfuse better. We generally think about FiO2 when we look at like the higher FiO2s when we start to get concerned. We sort of take it as a marker of how sick their lungs are. So if they're at the really high setting of FiO2, like getting into 80, 90, 100, those, those lungs are not doing well. Um, and it's at a certain point, you're not going to be able to maintain 100% FiO2. And you're looking at that person is probably going to need to be intubated or, you know, a goals of care discussion will need to be had or something like that because their lungs are not doing well. So we sort of take it as a gauge of how sick their lungs are. Um, like I said, 100% is not sustainable. I don't know the exact point where, <laughs> where that tips, but we just sort of take it as a guide for how sick their lungs are. Um, because it's ad addressing that patient's gas exchange within their lungs. If I got a consult for a patient for a swallow evaluation and I went to their room and they were on 100% FiO2, that's probably a number where I would not see them. I would go talk to the doctor and say, hey, is this, is, which way are they tipping? Are, are they going to get tubed here in a minute or are you going to wean them? What is this looking like? Because that patient is very, very sick. Um, and they probably should not be eating. Any questions that you have or you think the <laughs> listeners might have about no. high flow nasal cannula or flow versus FiO2? No, I, you guys are, are so thorough. So <laughs> I think this is great. We've, we've talked, we've worked on this a lot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Do this is awesome. About it, so. Yeah, no, this is, a, this is gonna be so helpful for so many people. So I know there's just so many questions that you guys just keep squashing, so. Sure, yeah, and I know this, this is, you kind of have to have a little bit of background knowledge on this topic to understand what we're talking about. So please, um, we're happy to give our email. If anyone, if a listener has a specific question, we can kind of break it down even more, um, you know, if that comes up. Absolutely. So I guess you want to talk about some research next. Sure. Um, so a lot of people, you know, SLPs want to know, are we allowed to, you know, see these patients? What's the number? What's the cutoff of when we can see them, when we can't see them? So we really looked at the research. Um, we started with what does high flow nasal cannula do? It, does it create positive airway pressure? And the answer is yes, and it creates a lot of positive airway pressure. Um, and when we talk about positive airway pressure, this is what you may want to consider when you're seeing the patient. This is that blowing effect that is meant to maintain an open airway, essentially. So a lot of SLPs will say, well, high flow nasal cannula is going to blow their airway open and they're going to aspirate and it's going to blow the food down their airway. And it very well could in a deconditioned, already respiratory compromised, frail, old sick person. So, you know, certainly something to consider. In 2017, Coglin and Skoritz uh, did a, a review and basically explained it that um, for every 10 liters per minute of flow on, on high flow nasal cannula patients receiving, 
it creates approximately one centimeter, centimeter of water, of positive airway pressure. So if a patient's on 55 liters per minute on OptiFlow, then that's about 5.5 centimeters of water of positive airway pressure. When we talk about creating a CPAP effect, CPAP delivers between like four and 20 centimeters of water of positive airway pressure. Um, and even if you look on um, the website manufacturing information for CPAP, um, it says do not eat and drink on this device because it increases risk of choking, um, referring to that positive airway pressure that it creates. So um, high flow nasal cannula will certainly create positive airway pressures within that CPAP range. And I think that's where a lot of this hesitation comes from mm -hmm. with SLPs. Yeah, there's two other studies that show similar things just at different settings. So there's a Park et al. study from 2009, and they deployed um, high flow nasal cannula at 35 liters per minute. And at the mouth closed posture, they found about 2.7 centimeters of positive airway pressure. Um, and again, that's only at 35 liters per minute. We're often seeing patients, again, it goes up to 60. So, you know, at, the, at those higher levels. So you would generally think the higher the flow, then the increase you would see in the positive airway pressure. Um, and then Groves and Tobin in 2007 also did a similar study, and they set the device at 20 liters per minute, 40 liters per minute, and 60 liters per minute. And at 20 liters per minute, they found with the mouth closed, the swallowing posture, 3.7 centimeters of positive airway pressure. At 40 liters, 7.2, and at 60 liters, 8.7. And again, CPAP is about 4 to 20, um, which is a big range too. But you're, you're basically, they've proven that high-flow nasal cannula can create that CPAP effect, which does make us nervous as the swallowing specialist to be sure that the patient will be able to safely protect their airway with that amount of pressure happening. So I think what we'll talk about next is the few studies that there have been that are related to swallowing and use of high-flow nasal cannula and what you know, those researchers have found. So with our very extensive um, online database search, we found only four peer-reviewed published studies that specifically evaluate swallowing on with adults on high-flow nasal cannula. So um, one of the hallmark studies, you can't mention high-flow nasal cannula without mentioning the LEADER et al. study back in 2015. Um, this was the first study, I believe, that was published evaluating uh, swallowing on high-flow nasal cannula. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so this was a study that um, was actually done on patients requiring high-flow nasal cannula. And that's another thing we want to point out. Some of the other studies were just on healthy adults. And you can't really translate the findings of that study to sick patients that actually require high-flow nasal cannula. Great information, um, and they're really, really informative. Um, but I would not relay those findings to my clinical practice because a healthy adult just wearing high-flow nasal cannula does not equal a sick adult requiring high-flow nasal cannula. So the leader at all study looked at 100 consecutive patients, 50 neonates and 50 adults, we will only talk about the adults because that's, you know, our focus here, but the 39 of the 50 adults were included in the study. To be included, you had to have a stable respiratory status between 10 and 50 liters per minute, an adequate mental status, passing the yell swallow protocol, and if that was failed, a fees was performed immediately, um, and the ability to handle oral secretions. 
It's really important to note that the patients included in this study, the most common flow rate was 26 liters per minute, and the FiO2 average was 66%. So that's a very low, relatively low liters per minute setting on um, a heated high-flow nasal cannula device. And we almost never see people yeah, that low yeah. of a liters per minute, right. um, just in our clinical experience. Um, and the reason I really like this study is, well, first of all, if you just read the abstract, it could be quite misleading. So it's really important to read the entire study and kind of look at um, the, kind of the breakdown of the patients that were included in the findings. So um, it was really kind of fun to do that, I'd say. So the findings were that five of the 39 included patients failed the Yale Swallow protocols, and that's just a screening protocol similar to like a 90 milliliter water swallow challenge with some additional criteria. And five of those 39 underwent a feeds, indicating the need for thickened liquids and compensatory techniques. Um, what they found and what they found was most important that 100% of included patients, so 39 of 39, were able to begin PO diets. And I think that's the biggest point they were trying to make is can these patients eat and drink? And the answer is yes. So us as SLPs getting a consult for a patient on high flow nasal cannula should not be saying this patient has to be NPO. Absolutely not. That is not um, what the research shows. Um, and I think that's why this study is so important. Yeah. And I think to be totally clear and honest, when high flow nasal cannula first came to our hospital and we were only seeing it initially here and there, we had the same reaction that I think a lot of people do of this is a really high oxygen device and this mm -hmm. patient is really medically sick and they're not appropriate to eat and consult us when they're no longer requiring high flow nasal cannula. And I, and you know, we did that for a while until it became more common and we learned more about it and really did our own investigation. So I think that's really common. And if you're practicing that way, it's totally understandable anytime something new comes out and yes, these patients are, are sick, but this study was really helpful to us to say, no, it's not just an automatic no, it's another piece of the puzzle that you need to look at for the whole picture and evaluate really closely. Awesome. Thank you. And we'll make sure that these um, resources are in the show notes too. Absolutely. So yeah. I, I feel like exactly what you said sometimes when something new comes out, and I feel like it's not exactly speech pathologists, but a lot of times the doctors that we work with or other therapists or nurses that will just say, well, they're on high flow. There's no way they can eat. What are you doing? Right. So it's a lot mm -hmm. of times we have to defend our position. So sometimes these papers can be helpful. Yeah, so absolutely. So thank yeah. you. We did want to kind of dissect the numbers a little bit more um, because I think this is where it can be a little bit misleading if you just read the abstract. So it's really important to kind of look at these numbers of the patients that were included. So we're kind of go through that a little bit. So we said 50 consecutive patients were recruited, only 39 were included that met the inclusionary criteria. So that means 11 of the 50 were too sick to participate. And that's really important to know. Um, it, that's important for us as the SLPs when we get the consult to say, well, is this person too sick to participate? Because we need to tease that out. So 11 of the 50 were excluded because they were too sick. Five aspirated on an instrumental swallow study. Um, so 16 of the 50, so that's about 32%, were either not appropriate for a PO or aspirated on a fees. So we know this is already a higher risk population when it comes to aspiration and dysphagia, um, whether it's you know just acute in, in their critical illness. 
So um, they also kind of said um, the, they defined successfully starting a PO diet as just that, starting a PO diet, but there was limited follow-up to make sure that they, they tolerated that diet. Um, and, that, and they stated that as a limitation of their study for sure. So um, we had some questions that for this study that kind of um, helped us, I think, guide our clinical practice a little bit more too. But you know, we wanted to know, of course, how was this tolerance monitored, um, which again, they stated was a, a limitation of the study. But we were also interested in these excluded patients. Who were they? And how do we know um, if we get a consult on someone that was excluded, how do we make that decision? Yeah, we also would have loved if every patient who they deemed appropriate to start PO had had a fees um, or instrumental eval of some kind um, to be able to know exactly based on objective data how well these patients were doing. Um, so that's one of our big complaints with the study that we would like to see either done differently or, you know, whatever, because we practice very much in the way that we want to see the data and know exactly what's happening with these patients. And so I think the study just would have been stronger if we knew it wasn't just that they passed the Yale Swallow Protocol, it was that they actually had an instrumental swallow study and they were able to say, yes, these patients can be on this diet versus these patients were actually silently aspirating and we would not have known that until we did this study. Um, and then the other thing too, with the excluded patients, we suspect those are probably the people who are on the higher flow settings. So it just would have been nice to know who were those patients who didn't even get included. Because again, the liters per minute on this study, the average was pretty low at only like 26. Um, and that's not typical for what we see in our practice. And I'm sure it's different everywhere. So my question in this study would be, well, the people that were excluded were those, the people on 40, 50, 60 liters per minute, and how did they do and why were they chosen to be not appropriate? So I think just a little bit more information about who all of these patients were would really make this um, a little bit more clear. Awesome. We are not researchers, but if anyone out there is, holler at us because we would love to design a study and um, implement that. So we always kind of dream about things yeah. like that, but we don't know how to do it. So. <laughs> but overall, I mean, we agree with the takeaway of this study. High nasal cannula should not preclude PO or a speech swallow evaluation, but we would like more information about the patients that were excluded and why, and we wish they were monitored a little bit longer to make sure they, they tolerated it. But, you know, that's, that's kind of the hallmark study. There are three others. We won't review them all in detail, but they're really, really good. And we would suggest that you guys read them. Yeah, we can include those in the um, show notes for you as well. There's mm -hmm. two studies that are done on healthy adults. Mm -hmm. um, so again, I think Candace mentioned this earlier, but not that we don't value those studies. They're still helpful and important, but I don't think that those are our patients um, and their findings are not exactly, they don't lend themselves to what we do on a daily basis. Um, so take that with a grain of salt. And then there's another article that came out in 2019 um, by Flores et al. that was 10 acute care patients that um, found similar findings in the sense that high flow nasal cannula should not be a restrictor to PO intake, but those patients are at, at risk and should be evaluated um, closely. We would argue um, in our clinical practice that these patients are generally going to be people that we do a fees on. Most of them are going to be in our ICU where we are more likely to perform fees versus modified barium swallow studies. 
So when we get these consults, assuming that the patient is ready um, from a mental status standpoint and a respiratory standpoint and appropriate to be taking PO, um, we know that they're at a higher risk because they're receiving a high flow of oxygen, particularly if their liters per minute are getting up there into the 40, 50, 60. Um, and so we would argue that the best practice would be to do a fees on those patients, even if they look great, um, just because we think that they're at higher risk and um, it's just the best way to practice. Mm -hmm. um, we also think not only are they potentially at higher risk to have dysphagia or aspirate, but they're, they're definitely a vulnerable population that given their already compromised respiratory status, they're at higher risk for the adverse complications related to aspiration um, with dysphagia. So we just think it's really important to kind of protect these patients already compromised respiratory status. Whereas, you know, if, it, if you're a healthy kind of floor patient that's not on oxygen and you aspirate, probably not that big of a deal. But if you're a very sick, respiratory compromised patient in the intensive care unit or on the medical floor, but you're at higher risk to develop problems related to that aspiration. So um, we just tend to practice a little bit more conservatively with these patients. Yeah. And I think um, another thing to plug is to have a good relationship with your respiratory therapists and your doctors and your nurses as much as you can. Um, because a lot of times we go to see these patients and they're on like 60 liters per minute and 60% FiO2 and you talk to the respiratory therapist and they're like, oh yeah, no, they don't need to be on that much anymore. We just haven't been in yet to wean them. Um, so we often find that when you see these patients, particularly if they're on a really high setting, it's a great time to check in with the doctor, the respiratory therapist, the nurse and say, are we thinking they're going to be weaned anytime soon or is this where they're going to be for the next few days? And if they say, no, they can't be weaned and this is as good as it's going to get, please go and do your evaluation, then go for it. And if they say, oh, I just haven't gotten there yet because I was doing X, Y, and Z, I'm going to go in in the next half hour and actually we're just going to put them on nasal cannula. Um, they're doing so much better and we just you know, hadn't gotten to it yet, then wait until they get onto the nasal cannula and then make your assessment from there. But we find that that happens a lot mm -hmm. where the patient's doing fine. And so no one has adjusted it yet. And because they're doing fine. And so I think it's a good time to advocate for your patients too, that if they don't need that much oxygen blowing into their lungs, then see if it can be reduced because that's going to reduce their risk of aspiration. It's going to reduce that CPAP rate um, and give them a better chance of being able to protect their airway. And it also tells you that they're not as sick as maybe you thought when you walked in the door and saw the settings on the OptiFlow device. So having a good relationship with your respiratory therapist is, is so beneficial for so many reasons. Awesome. Let me ask you guys, is this something that has your hospital kind of always practiced this way? Or is this something that you guys spearheaded like, you know, hey, maybe we should kind of change our approach or yeah, we definitely spearheaded that, um, I would say a couple of years ago, maybe four years ago mm -hmm. or so. And I would say it's even evolved since we started. A lot is evolved, you know, so it's always important to start somewhere and then just keep up with the research and talk about the research. Don't just read it and then sit on it. Meet with your team. Talk about what does this mean for our clinical practice? I think the the one of the most critical things we can do is clinical speech therapists is take research, but then interpret to what that means for our practice. We try to, when even when we do our presentations, try to make it as functional to clinical practice as possible and not just like numbers of research. Like what does this mean for when I go see a patient? 
Um, so have those conversations as a team and even invite a respiratory therapist or a pulmonologist or someone that you have a close relationship with to have these conversations with. So you all kind of know that you're on the same page with other professionals as well, too. Yeah, and I think to be totally transparent, we started this journey to be like, okay, so this is the cutoff point to tell our staff and our parents that if they're on 50 liters per minute and 40% FiO2 or anything higher, then we don't see them. And we put a contact note in that says that they're on two hive settings and reconsult us when they're, you know, more stable. So we wanted to cut off too. <laughs> and I think that's what everybody does and everybody that we give this presentation to in the speech pathology world is looking for that cutoff point and um, really going through the research showed us that there isn't one, you know, it's, it's a piece of the puzzle and you need to look at the patient holistically and know their whole medical picture. And you can, there's never going to be a always or never rule with this. And so, yeah, we really started out trying to give some numbers to our PRN staff who are not there as often as us and give them an idea of when they should and shouldn't see the patient. And so that really, this helped guide our practice of, there's no such thing and you need to take each patient individually. I love it. I feel like that's just the whole theme of dysphagia. Everything. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We often think about it similar to like intubation, right? So you can see a patient who's intubated for a week and they look terrible and you can see a patient who's intubated for a week and they look great. And you need to know the whole reason why they were intubated and for how long and what their other medical comorbidities are and what their risks are. And there's never just going to be a, they were intubated. You have to do this. They were not, you know, you have to do that. It's just not, it's not formulaic in that way. Awesome. Well, thank you guys. This was wonderful. Oh, you're so welcome. <laughs> Hopefully we didn't talk too much. I know. No, not, like not at all. <laughs> no, you, you can tell that you guys clearly know what you're talking about, but I, that's not what I <laughs> meant to say. But it was like every time I had a question brewing, it was like you answered it and then I had another oh, one and then you answered you. it. So, Great. so thank you. So, um, any, you know, any, any final thoughts, I think, I guess, you know, any advice for, we, we already covered this a little bit, but yeah. you know, wanting to kind of spearhead a program like this in your hospital or try to change some ways of things that have always been done? Yeah. So I would say the first thing you have to do or should do is just get support from the rest of your team or your manager. And I feel like we have such a great support system, whether it's with our lead SLP and just our coworkers too. Don't have an ego, <laughs> um, but go in with keeping in mind, I want to do what's best for the patient. Um, and as long as you keep that at the forefront of your mind, then you're going to be successful with it. So, you know, do the research, figure out what's out there, collaborate with your team, and then talk to other professionals too, um, and just kind of bounce ideas off them. But go in with having the research under your belt so you kind of have a leg to stand on when you do try to provide your rationale of why you want to practice a certain way. And then I think you're in good shape, really. Yeah, absolutely. And I think if you have more questions about this or want more information from just what we've been talking about, we do give a CEU course through um, Carolina Speech Pathology, and the website is carolinafees.com. And we're giving another one on October 22nd at um, 7 p.m. Eastern time. So if you are interested and want some CEUs um, specific to this topic, it will go into more detail about some of the articles and more 
so if you wanted a jumping off point for your program or your hospital, I think that we would love to plug that um, and say that that could give you kind of a starting place to talk to your team and your doctors and therapists and things like that. Thank you so much, ladies. You guys are wonderful. Thank you. Well, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Appreciate it. All right. Thank you so much, you guys. To download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email so that you'll never miss another episode. If you like what you hear, then please subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, and share it on social media with your friends and colleagues, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at teresarichard.com. Special credit to Danny V. Socrates for her amazing audio and editing skills and to Marissa Hendrickson for managing all the things behind the scenes. As always, thanks so much for listening and see you next week.